0: Amen. Uh, I love that prayer to have God speak to us through the audible voice of God through God's Word. That's where we know that it is truly God and not just the pizza we ate too late last night that is giving us our thoughts or ideas about who God is. And speaking of eating uh, too late or too close to an event. How many of you have ever heard that, uh, that saying that you shouldn't eat before you go, what? Swimming, right, yeah. So I want to <laughs> use that segue to ask you this question this morning, and that is, what was your first memory of swimming or the diving board? Was it uh, one of fear or was it one of fun? How about a show of hands? How many of you were, when, when you first went swimming or first got to go off of a diving board, you were like, this is fun? How many? All right. And how many of you were, had a little bit of fear or a lot of fear? Yes. How many of you cannot swim at all? There are a couple. Yeah. Well, fear of drowning is something that many people fight to overcome. And I remember as a kid that I, I went uh, through swimming lessons at our local public pool. It was a big indoor pool complex in Springfield, Oregon, which is right next to Eugene. And they had little cards that my parents would sign me up for swimming lessons. And you would, start up, uh, you would start as a guppy or a minnow, something like that. And then you moved up to be, I don't know, a, a, a seal or something like that. Then you became a dolphin. But to get from dolphin, which I, I got to dolphin, to get to dolphin to shark, which, I mean, as a young elementary school boy, being a shark is really the pinnacle, you had to be able to swim in the lap pool where you couldn't touch right? Uh, And also, you had to go off of the high dive. You know the high dive? Not the bouncy board, but it was the platform. It was at least 15 feet high, and and you dove into the 12-foot diving pool. Well, it took quite a while. It took me two summers to graduate from dolphin to shark, because the first summer I uh, wouldn't into the pool where I couldn't touch. I didn't want to drown. And then the second summer, I, uh, I, I finally did it. And so all that was left was the 15-foot plunge to my death. That's right. And it took quite a while for me. Uh, during that summer, I could test up to shark any time during that summer. Uh, and so finally, I talked myself into it. I climbed up the ladder all the way to the top, and then it's this big platform. Once you get to the top of the ladder, you've got to walk another six to eight feet to the edge of the platform. And so I walk out, and I put my toes on the edge of the platform, and I look down, and I go, nope. And I turned around, and I did the reverse climb of shame. Do you know that one? Maybe some of you have lived this. Maybe you have kids that got to the very top of the biggest water slide, and they were like, nope. And then you're having to weave through the crowd and the line. Uh, In fact, the the fear of drowning isn't just uh, reserved for swimming or diving. I had to talk my wife into going on a cruise ship because she had this fear of being out in the middle of the ocean and, and, and being on top of a body of water that she didn't know how deep it was and she didn't know what was in it. Underneath her, that fear of the unknown. And it was a hard, it was a hard conversation. It was an ongoing conversation, trying to convince her. No, 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 it is, those things are like skyscrapers. I mean, they're so big and they're so... And I didn't realize that skyscrapers were a fear for, of hers as well. So I've had to backtrack. You ever get yourself in trouble with, you know, oh, no, it's this. And it's, like, it's like, oh, no, it's not that. It's more like this. I was the dingy. Anyways, uh, but she finally went and we've gone a number of times and we're waiting for the cruise industry to open back up and for us to be fully vaccinated. And while she loves it, she still has that fear in the back of her mind. Well, as we enter into our second week of our series leading us up to Easter, all things new, I thought it would be good for us to look at what new life, Uh, looks like when we follow Jesus. Uh, Last week we talked about new life, right? We talked about new life and the origins of life, and this week we're going to build on that foundation as we look at how Jesus brings us a new peace. A new peace. Now, when I say that word, peace, what runs through your mind? What do you think of when I say peace? Uh, Do you think of a hippie flashing two fingers? Or maybe Nixon, like this. Uh, its a 70s reference. Maybe you think of a cabin in the woods or a fully, vested in, a, a fully vested retirement account, and that sounds like peace to me. Maybe it's a holiday meal with no fights or no controversy. Uh, for a parent with small kids in the house, maybe a bathroom with a lock on the door is your current peaceful place. Well, motivational speaker Zig Ziglar once said, people are basically the same the world over. Everyone wants the same things. To be happy, to be healthy, to be at least reasonably prosperous, and to be secure. They want friends, peace of mind, good family relationships, and hope that tomorrow is going to be even better than today. Unquote. Peace is a time or a state of being where there is a prosperous period, right? That's what peace is. A a time or a state of being where there's a prosperous period free from war, chaos, and fear. Let me say that one again. Peace is a time or state of being free from fear. That's revolutionary, is it not? Uh, Not just for countries and their armies, but for you and I. And uh, the armies that we muster and the borders we fortify in our lives are against the things we fear. If you deal with a a period of warring words and chaos and unpredictability, not to mention just good old-fashioned fear of spiders and drowning, well, Jesus is here to give you a new peace. That's right, a new peace. So let's read scripture for a picture of humanity's fears and the nature of God. In other words, let's look at who God is and who we are. And so let's turn to the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 4 starting with verse 35. And as you do, let me say a quick prayer for our time of study. Mark chapter 4 starting with verse 35. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true Illuminate our hearts and minds to the truths that are in it. Help us to understand who we are and who you are better through the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. uh, Starting with verse 35. On that day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. They woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? So he got up. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be quiet, calm down. Then the wind stopped and it was dead calm. And he said to them, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. What do we encounter about God and humanity in this passage? And and first, let's look at it in relation to this element of the story that Jesus was with them on the boat. So the Son of God was with them in the storm. That's good, right? Doesn't that sound good? Another name for the Son of God is Emmanuel, which means God with us. We talked about the Son of God taking on new life in human form in the baby Jesus in last week's message. But what do we encounter about humanity in this story? Well, first and foremost, that humanity struggles to grasp the deity, the godness of Jesus. And it doesn't matter how many miracles he performs or parables of wisdom that Jesus tells the disciples, the primary followers of Jesus, questioned his capability to care for them. What's something else that we encounter about God in this passage? How about Jesus can command the elements of nature? He rebuked the wind and calmed the sea. I love how this translation, the New English translation, the text that we're using today, translates Jesus' words. Be quiet, calm down. The Gospel writer Mark notes the wind stopped and the seas were dead calm. Now, does that work in your house or car? In your workplace when you have kind of a chicken little on your team? Does that work? Uh, what qualities give someone such command in a storm or chaos? Certainly power, authority, tone, volume. Uh, that way, if your kids don't mind, just crank it up to 11, right? But how about on the hearer? In this case, the wind and water. What qualities? stay with me what qualities do the wind and water need the listener to the one that's in authority or command they must be listening under authority yielding submitting trusting right isn't that when your kids when your spouse when a loved one a friend a coworker a subordinate isn't that what's needed When you have authority and you have power, there's got to be listening. There's got to be yielding, submitting, and trusting. The story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat is a story of communication and expectation. Jesus expects the disciples to have courage and faith, knowing that he is with them, the Son of God, in the boat, on a cushion. The disciples have a different expectation of Jesus, right? That he won't be asleep, and that Jesus, get this, will fear what they fear, and be concerned the way they are concerned. Do you get that? Jesus communicated his power and authority every time he taught, healed, and rebuked, and the disciples listened enough, and believed him enough, and Invested into his authority enough to follow, listened enough to know Jesus was good for other people to submit to, but not enough for them to trust him in their storm. Jesus didn't care enough, they thought. Humanity thinks that God doesn't care, or he's unaware. That's another thing we encounter about humanity through this story of the disciples and Jesus. All you have to do, is look at the writings of a man after God's own heart, King David, to see even the greatest follower of God has thoughts of his alleged abandonment and detachment. Look at Psalm 13, verses 1 through 4. I'll I'll put them all on one slide. How long, Lord? This is David, the man after God's own heart. How long, Lord, will you continue to ignore me? How long will you pay no attention to me? How long must I worry and suffer in broad daylight? How long will my enemy gloat over me? Look at me, answer me, O Lord my God. Revive me or else I will die. Then my enemy will say, I have defeated him. Then my foes will rejoice because I am upended. I think it's safe to say that if King David and the disciples, both said, why are you asleep at the wheel of my life, God? That this is something that we encounter universally with all of humanity. That you and I, and our neighbors, and our loved ones, and our enemies, are not immune to thinking that God is asleep at the wheel. And don't let Jesus's why are you cowardly? Why, uh, why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? Convince you that the Son of God was unfamiliar with this aspect of humanity, right? He was being rhetorical. He was being instructional. He was being convictional. He knew. Finally, at the end of this passage, our passage today in Mark, we find that for the disciples, the fear of the storm was replaced with fear of Jesus and his power. How many of you, I want to take a poll. How many of you were pliable, trusting, and obedient children? I've got a, a couple and then I got a couple of these? Yeah, okay. Well what I'm talking about is where if your parent told you to do something, you never asked why uh, or how many of you when going to the doctor the dentist the hospital uh, had all the questions and arguments that you could conjure to avoid or delay a shot or procedure a familiar story from our family is that when our daughter was younger she would get into a panic about getting a shot or uh, that she would need a sliver removed and Similar to myself, she would need an explanation. She would need a just cause to allow something to jab her or to be extracted from her, even if that thing that was being extracted was causing pain. Well, I, like her, need to know these things, why things need to happen, how they're going to happen, and how long this happening is going to be. Uh, how many of you are like that? A few of you. You're asking, "How long am I going to be asking questions where you have to raise your hands?" I get it, um, but here's the thing: in immediate trauma situations, when when the trauma is happening and the tears and fears are flowing, no explanation seems to be sufficient in a new and unknown situation. We trust ourselves. My daughter and I, we trust ourselves more than any other figure in our lives. Uh, and come to think of it, my wife is really similar to the, us as well, and so we three are quite the, the trio. But what I have found as a father, especially when my daughter was younger, she's a teenager now, but when she was younger, I found that when she feared a needle with medicine, a drill for cavities, or uh, tweezers for the removal of a splinter, when we were at an impasse of wills and she was just dug in, sometimes she needed to fear me more than the needle or the drill or the tweezers. Do you get what I'm saying? And so my volume and my authority and my largesse would come into play. And when that fear of me took over, then the doctor or the nurse could administer the needle, the dentist, the drill, or mom with the tweezers. I was willing to be the bad cop, so her fear of me would save her from sickness, toothlessness, and infection. Affectionness—that's not a word—but in in the case of the disciples, God had. uh, uh, In the case of the disciples, they had swapped their fears, and don't miss this: this fear that they had of Jesus was still absent of the full knowledge of who he was. They didn't grasp his deity, like we talked about earlier. What he was fully capable of—capable of. Remember the words from the disciples was. Who then is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. Again, humanity struggles with the deity and power of Jesus. So here's one more thing we encounter about God in our scripture today, and that is that God's power is fearsome. It's fearsome. And yet, we as humans, we get cocky. We've got mega Doppler radar. We can see the storms coming. And we can protect ourselves. One year ago, a tornado that ripped through our community showed us the power of the natural world and the sobering reality that we can't control it. We certainly can't see it coming in the dark, in the middle of night. And yet, God's power is more awesome than that. His mere voice and commands calms the wind and waters. Which this allows us to make another statement from Scripture about God that God allows storms in our lives. Jesus, asleep in the back of the boat. How often do you feel a frustration with Jesus sleeping on the boat of your life? Have you ever felt that? Do you feel that now? As a pastor, I have oftentimes heard similar refrains, but no more so than this past year of this pandemic. Most of us, when we listen to the advice of the world, we often blame Satan for the storms in our lives, or we blame others. It's their fault that there are storms in our lives. And then we seek to go back to the normal of our lives, make our lives normal, at any cost. Sometimes that means we avoid confrontations, right? We, ah, we just don't want to go there. Uh, but other times it means instead of avoidance, it's just constant complaint, two sides of the same coin. In other words, we either run from the storms or complain to God that he's not paying attention, or give Satan the credit for essentially having more power than the God that can just speak the storms to cease. Some of the reasons I think that God allows storms in our lives, if you just take this biblical account, is to test and build our courage and faith while demonstrating the power of Jesus. That's what we see in this story, right? If you run from storms, if you're a runner and you run from storms, instead of looking to build your courage and your faith, God will have those same lessons in different forms waiting for you at the next place or the next relationship. Some of you and myself, we've lived it, right? Where that pop quiz that we run from, that storm that we run from, is in the next place. It's in the next relationship. God allows storms to help you and I lean and depend on others, to lean on the people of God and the people of God, the leaders of the people of God, all pointing to the one that we can lean on most, Jesus. Because here's the thing, on this earth, especially in our country with our our pull-ourselves-up-by-our-bootstraps individualism, when you don't follow leadership, who are you really following? You're following you, right? If you're not following someone else, you're following you. Does anyone know the term snowbird? Snowbird, the, the term, not the like the character that used to be on the was that what the, the bird was on, on the local news, snowbird? Yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about that snowbird, but the term snowbird that I learned growing up in the Northwest, and it's probably around elsewhere, is this term for folks, and they're usually older, maybe retired, that would summer in the North, and in the winter, they would head South. Uh, to, in the Northwest, it would be the Southwest, like Southern California, or more likely Arizona, and maybe New Yorkers to Florida or whatnot. And not just to avoid the cold drizzle and the snow of the winters uh, or avoid the extreme heat of the summers in the Southwest, but to, to gain the glorious summers in the Northwest and the dry temperate weather in the winter in the Southwest. And here's why I bring up this term of snowbird, too often in our culture, especially here in the U.S., this behavior, this snowbird behavior, is commonplace for the average American in their relationships. Even disciples of Jesus, Christians, seeking lives similar to snowbirds, migrating to avoid the storms of life. We wrongly think Jesus wouldn't want me to sail into those waters. Jesus certainly wouldn't want me to stay in these waters. And yet, God allows storms in our lives. Why? To grow our courage and faith and display His awesome power. One more thing that we encounter about God from today's passage that I alluded to earlier, uh, and there's no slide for this, but... Jesus, the Son of God, rebukes His disciples. You know, Jesus that loves us and we want to share the love of Jesus. Jesus rebukes His disciples. He corrects them. He questions their comprehension of what He's been telling them. He holds them to a standard and calls them out when they fall short to offer them grace, to offer them a way forward, to offer restoration and I think there's a significant reason why Jesus was asleep on the boat of the disciples in the storm and it's this that God allows storms for other boats quote other boats unquote look at mark 4 verse 36 again, it was the second verse of our passage today. So after leaving the crowd, they, the disciples, took him along just as he was in the boat and other boats were with him. God allows storms, not just for you, but for others around you. Why? So they can see what it's like for someone that has Jesus when they don't. When you know Jesus and they don't. You see, the storm causes people to look around that are commiserating, that are in misery with other people in the same storm, and Jesus expects followers of Him to react differently so that other boats see a difference in their lives, and it's not because of how good those people are. It's because of the trust and courage and faithfulness that we have in our Savior. But when we, as believers, hyperventilate just as much or more than a non-believer during the storms of life, Jesus asks you and me Why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? After all of these Sundays that you've attended church, after all of the memory verses from Awana and church camps and and small group meetings and, and daily text messages with the verse of the day, this was not this event with Jesus and the disciples in the boat. This was not some come to the pastor's office, private meeting with the disciples, but a challenge in front of other boats. God allows storms not just for your personal growth and benefit, but for your example to draw others that fear, that fear the storm to a God that can calm the wind and the waters, and they see your calm. They see your perspective. And again, not because you are anything special, but because of the special one that resides in you, that is not asleep at the wheel, but that can calm the waters just with his mere words or voice. Okay, at least one of you, at least one of you, either here or at home, has thought this at some time over the past few minutes. Pastor, what does this have to do with new peace? (laughs) Good question. Let's go to Jesus' words for the answer, and we're going to move from one gospel to another. Navigate over to John chapter uh, 14, starting with verse 27. This is what Jesus says. Peace, words of Jesus, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Old peace. You're not going to get that old peace. You're going to get a new peace. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in what? Courage. There's that word again. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I am. I have told you now before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. This is my kind of parenting right here. I'm getting advance notice (laughs) that we're going to get a shot later on, but it's for my good. Jesus is not springing it on the disciples. He's telling them. He's preparing them. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming. Who's he speaking about here? It's an easy answer. It's the opposite of the Sunday school answer of Jesus. Who do we blame when the storms come? Satan, Satan, the devil, yeah. The ruler of this world is coming. Get this. He has no power over me. Jesus, not me. Jesus. But I am doing just what the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Get up. Let us go from here. Jesus was leaving, but he was leaving two things for his disciples, uh, which includes anyone in this room or at home that's listening that wants to follow Jesus. He's leaving two things for us. He leaves us a new peace, not like the peace that the world offers. Remember how the world tells us to achieve personal peace? Here are some of the ways that the world tells us to achieve personal peace. Obtaining and maintaining power. If I just have more say I'm gonna. I'm gonna have peace if I can just keep my power and my influence. I'm gonna have peace because it's about control, uh, wealth, or success. How you define that? If I just have enough, I will be at peace. Not going there, you know. Avoiding the storms, avoiding the conversations, avoiding the awkwardness. Uh, that's gonna keep the. That's going to keep the peace. And frankly, just more globally, avoiding all, every, and all storms. But Jesus offers us a new peace, and that allows us to do all things. This new peace allows us to do all things through Christ, who strengthens us. All things. Not all the things we want to do, but it allows us to do all the storms. (laughs) We're not chasing storms. We're not those crazy people that have cameras in their vehicles and little whirly gigs on top of measure the wind. And we're going to chase storms. No, we don't chase storms. But we don't run from them. We endure them. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. All things, like a 12 month and counting pandemic, hybrid schooling. Hybrid churching, receiving and embracing a new peace means that when the world tells you that you need to be concerned for your very survival, when the world tells you that you need to be concerned, how about this, about your kids falling behind in school or falling behind in their biblical learning at church that you realize that God is not asleep at the wheel. God has not abandoned you or your children or your grandchildren. In fact, your children might become exceptional because of the year they have lived through. My, my dad, who, who passed away before I even met Haley, never met Haley, never met my daughter, his granddaughter, he was a child that lived through the Great Depression, he had, long, he had long, life-lasting lessons that he learned by living through that. How he uh, managed his money, how he, how he managed his household, how he didn't put his hope in things. He, would, he was the original parent that said, go outside and play with a stick, <laughs> when I wanted an allowance to go buy Dungeons & Dragons dice. I was that kid. Already sociologists are calling our current, uh, our new generation of kids, they're calling them Generation C for COVID because they are going to have, just like millennials uh, were different and Generation X coming out of the baby boomers were different, different times and different Episodes and seasons and storms in a generation's life can have a lasting and beneficial impact to society. God has got this. We don't have to manufacture or force normal back onto our families or ourselves to find peace and security in the old way we did things, in the way that, the, that society and the world says that's the only way that you're going to have peace. Okay, so let's press pause. There's a lot more things that we can encounter about God and humanity in these passages, but I want to take us uh, to, the, to the finish line. I want to land the plane with this time of examining your hearts. In light of the truths of Scripture about who God is and who we are as human beings, here are four questions that I want us to consider along with any other area in your life that the Holy Spirit is challenging you with this morning. First, which do you fear more? The storm or God's power? Which do you fear more? The storm or God's power? The storm is ever-present, right? When the winds start howling and the water's beating down, when the waves are lapping over into the boat and the pump doesn't work That is just so front of mind and so enveloping all-consuming That it can be hard to remember That God is more powerful than the storm that God is more fearsome than the storm and that God allows storms Why for our courage and our faith. Which do you fear more, the storm or his power? How about this question, this statement in question, the storm obeys Jesus. Do you? These are, these are more painful than a shot or a drill or tweezers. i gotta, I got to get to something better. Um, the storm obeys Jesus. Do you? And then how aware are you There we go. How aware are you of the presence of God in your life? That if you follow Jesus, His Spirit dwells within you. We're not talking about Jesus on a cushion in a boat, or Jesus went away to a solitary place and left us all alone until He comes back, but that we have the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us if we have given our lives to follow the Son of God. How aware are you of that? If we're aware of it, doesn't it make sense that the storms of life become less oppression and more elevation? That we look beyond the water that's lapping around our feet inside the boat and we start looking out at the other boats. Encouraging them. Talking them through it. Saying, yes, storm, but Jesus. And then the lastly, do you want the peace of the world or the new peace of Jesus? The peace of the world is very intoxicating. Success, power, wealth, knowledge, um, The peace of niceness because we're just not going to go there. Avoiding storms and being snowbirds. That peace is very alluring. And yet, the new peace that Jesus offers us is so much more. It's so much better. King David cried out to God because he thought God was asleep at the wheel. In the first uh, four verses of of Psalm 13. That psalm is only six verses long. We read the first four. Let's read the last two verses. Verses five and six. It's a fitting end uh, to this message. Remember all the complaint? Where are you? Uh, You know, say something. This is how David comes to the end of himself and looks back to a fearsome and awesome God. But I trust in your faithfulness, may I rejoice because of your deliverance. I will sing praises to the Lord when He vindicates me. That's a pretty good response, except for He's going to hold off the singing of praises until His vindication. He's still human, after all. Uh, you and I and the rest of humanity, um, we when we seek the world's peace, what we're basically saying is, what we're basically doing is, we're becoming our own God. Trying to manufacture outcomes, protecting the borders of our lives, and avoiding storms at all costs, all the while shaking our fists at God for not bending to our will for blue skies. Uh, Missionary Elizabeth Elliot whose husband Jim was killed by the people he went to share Jesus with, uh, Elizabeth once said this, God will not, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Wow. God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. When We submit to and follow Jesus. We understand that our less than optimal outcomes, our leaky borders and our stormy seasons actually come from God and and come from a God fully in control. Storms should remind us of God's power, that He is with us. He is with us in the midst of the storm. And then that's when we can echo David and say, I trust in your faithfulness. I rejoice in your deliverance, either now or in the not yet. And so we sing. We should sing. Knowing who Jesus is, we should sing before and during and after the storm because Jesus makes all things new. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we become so blinded. We become so distracted. This is a confession, Father. We become so blinded and so distracted and so dim-witted about who we are we think we're the greatest. Or we think, at least, maybe we're not the greatest yet, but we can become the greatest. And that we can become godlike, where we can manufacture a perfect peace, where we can migrate from places and situations and relationships just. Avoiding the storms. But Father, we ask you this morning, we ask you to open our eyes and our hearts to the truths that you allow storms, both to test and build our courage and our faith, but also you create the storms to upset the world's plans, the ruler of this world's plans, to intoxicate us into a false peace. So, Father, as followers of Jesus, those of us that are intently seeking to follow you, Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us enough to convict us and rebuke us in the boat, after you've calmed the storm, after you've heard our cries, but Father, help us to face the next storm if we've been a coward in the last. Help us to face the next storm with courage and faith. And help us to be an example for those that don't know you and don't follow you, for the other boats. Help us to be that example, not because of how great we are and how we've graduated into this new area and new league of spiritual maturity, but help us to be an example of a broken human that trusts in an all-powerful and all-loving God. Father, help us to say some of the most powerful words that help us stay in the storm, that help us uh, uh, avoid running from storms, especially in relationships, help us to say, I'm sorry. And also help us to say, I forgive you. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Continue to help it germinate and sprout new life and new peace in us today and this week. And we ask these things As we we begin to praise you through song, in Jesus' name, amen.